Chapter 16, Part 2 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16, Part 2 The Attempt to Recapture Sumter. The midsummer campaign left Clara Barton desperately sick. She came very near to laying down her life with the brave men for whose sake she had freely risked it. What with her own sickness and the strenuous nature of her service, there is only a single line in her diary on Thanksgiving Day between July 23rd and December 1st. On July 22nd, she personally assisted at two terrible surgical operations as the men were brought directly in from the field. The soldiers were so badly wounded, she wanted to see them die before the surgeon touched them. But the surgeons did their work well, and though it was raining and cold, she covered them with rubber blankets and was astonished to find how comfortable they came to be. She returned to see them in the evening, and they were both sleeping soundly. On the following day, the day of her last entry for the summer, she reported the wounded under her care as doing well. Also, that she had now a man detailed to assume some of the responsibility for the food of the wounded. Fresh green corn was available, and she was having hominy cooked for men who had had quite too much of salt pork. She was arranging the meals, but had other people serve them. Then Clara Barton dropped. Her strength gave out. Overcome with fatigue and sick with fever, she lay for several weeks and wrote neither letters nor in her journal. By October, she was ready to answer Annie Child's thoughtful inquiry about her wardrobe. There were two successive letters, two weeks apart, that consisted almost wholly of the answers she made to the question wherewithal she should be clothed. Lest we should suppose Clara Barton to be an institution and not a wholly feminine woman, it is interesting to notice her concern that these dresses be of proper material and suitably made. The dresses arrived with rather surprising promptness, and they fitted with only minor alterations, which she described in detail to Annie. Toward the end of October, she had occasion to write again to Annie, thanking the friends who had remembered her so kindly, and expressing in her letter the feeling, which she so often recorded in her diary, that she was not doing as much as she ought to merit the kindness of her friends. In another letter, a few days later, she told of one use she was making of her riding skirt, she was furnishing a hospital at Fort Mitchell, seven miles away, and her ride to that hospital combined both pleasure and business. About this time, she gathered some trophies and sent to Worcester for the fair. They were exhibited and sold to add to the resources of the good people who were providing in various ways for the comfort of the soldiers. 
At this time, she wrote to other organizations who had sent her supplies, telling of the good they had done. But again, she fell upon a time of relative inactivity. There were no more battles to be fought immediately. She again wondered if she had any right to stay in a place where everything was so comfortable, especially as Annie Childs had written to her that the Worcester and Oxford woman would not permit her to bear any part of the expense for the new clothes that had been made for her. About this time, her brother David received a letter from Stephen, which showed that it was useless for her to stay where she was with any present expectation of securing his relief. He was still remaining with his property, unmolested by both sides, and thought it better to continue there than run what seemed to him the larger risks of leaving. One of the most interesting and in its way pathetic entries in her diary at this season is a long one on December 5, 1863. Miss Barton had collided with official arrogance and had unhappy memories of it. She probably would have said nothing about it had she not been appealed to by one of the women at the headquarters to do something to improve conditions at the regular hospital and that was something which Clara Barton simply could not do. She knew better than almost anyone else how much those hospitals lacked of perfection. She herself did not visit them, excepting as she went there to return official calls. She had made it plain to those in charge that she had not come to interfere with any form of established work, but to do a work of her own in complete sympathy and cooperation with theirs. She knew that Dorothea Dix had undertaken an impossible task. She saw some nurses near to where she was who were much more fond of spending pleasant evenings at headquarters than they were of doing the work for which they were supposed to have come down but she also knew that even such work as she was doing was looked upon by some of them with feelings of jealousy, as work outside of the general organization, yet receiving from the public a confidence and recognition not always accorded their own. One night, after one of the officers' wives had poured out her soul to Clara Barton, she poured out her soul to her diary. It is a very long entry, but it treats of some highly important subjects. I moved along to the farther end of the piazza and found Mrs. D., who soon made known to me the subject of her desires. As I suspected, the matter was hospitals. She has been visiting the hospitals at this place, and has become not only interested, but excited upon the subject. The clothing department she finds satisfactory, but the storeroom appears empty, and a sameness prevailing through food as provided, which seems to her appalling for a diet for sick men. 
she states that they have no delicacies such as the country at the north are flooding hospitals with, that the food is all badly cooked, served cold, and always the same thing, dip toast, meat cooked dry, and tea without milk, perhaps once a week a potato for each man or a baked apple. She proposed to establish a kitchen department for the serving of proper food to these men, irrespective of the pleasure of the powers that be. She expects opposition from the surgeons in charge and Mrs. Russell, the matron appointed and stationed by Miss Dix, but thinks to commence by littles and work herself in, in spite of opposition, or make report direct to Washington through Judge Holt and other influential friends, and obtain a carte blanche from Secretary Stanton to act independently of all parties. She wished to know if I thought it would be possible to procure supplies sufficient to carry on such a plan, and people to cook and serve if it were once established and directed properly. She had just mailed a letter to Miss Dame calling upon her to stir people at the north and make a move, if possible, in the right direction. She said General Gilmore took tea with her the evening previous and inquired with much feeling, How are my poor boys? She desired me to attend church at the hospital tomorrow, Sunday morning. Not with her, but go, pass through, and judge for myself. In the meantime, the major came in, and the subject was discussed generally. I listened attentively, gave it as my opinion that there would be no difficulty in obtaining supplies and means of paying for the preparation of them, but of the manner and feasibility of delivering and distributing them among the patients, I said nothing. I had nothing to say. I partly promised to attend church the next morning, and retired having said very little. What I have thought is quite another thing. I have no doubt but the patients lack many luxuries which the country at large endeavors to supply them with, and supposes they have, no doubt. But men suffer and die for the lack of the nursing and provisions of the loved ones at home. No doubt but the stately, stupendous, and magnificent indolence of the officers in charge embitters the days of the poor sufferers who have become mere machines in the hands of the government to be ruled and oppressed by puffed-up, conceited, and self-sufficient superiors in position. No doubt but a good, well-regulated kitchen, presided over with a little good common sense and womanly care, would change the whole aspect of things and lengthen the days of some, and brighten the last days of others of the poor sufferers within the thin walls of the hospital. I wish it might be, but what can I do? First, it is not my province. I should be out of place there. Next, Miss Dix is supreme, 
and her appointed nurse is matron. Next, the surgeons will not brook any interference, and will, in my opinion, resent and resist the smallest effort to break over their own arrangements. What others may be able to do, I'm unable to conjecture, but I feel that my guns are effectually silenced. My sympathy is not destroyed by any means, but my confidence in my ability to accomplish anything of an alleviating character in this department is completely annihilated. I went with all I had to work where I thought I saw greatest need. A man can have no greater need than to be saved from death, and after six weeks of unremitting toil, I was driven from my own tents by the selfish cupidity or stupidity of a pompous staff surgeon with a little accidental temporary authority, and I by the means thrown upon a couch of sickness from which I barely escaped with my life. After four weeks of suffering most intense, I rose in my weakness and repaired again to my post, and scarcely were my labors recommenced when, through the same influence or no influence brought to bear upon the general commanding, I was made the subject of a general order and commanded to leave the island, giving me three hours in which to pack remove, and ship four tons of supplies with no assistance that they knew of but one old female negro cook. I complied, but was remanded to Beaufort to labor in the hospitals there. With this portion of the order I failed to comply, and went home to Hilton Head and wrote the commanding general a full explanation of my position, intention, proposed labors, etc., etc., which brought a rather sharp response, calling my humanity to account for not being willing to comply with his specified request, viz. to labor in Beaufort hospitals insisting upon the plan as gravely as if it had been a possibility to be accomplished. But for the extreme ludicrousness of the thing, I should have felt hurt at the bare thought of such a charge against me and from such a quarter. The hospitals were supplied by the Sanitary Commission, Miss Dix holding supremacy over all female attendants by authority from Washington, Mrs. Lander claiming and endeavoring to enforce the same and scandalizing through the press, each hospital labeled no admittance and its surgeons bristling like porcupines at the bare sight of a proposed visitor. How in reason's name was I to labor there? Should I prepare my food and thrust it against the outer walls in the hope it might strengthen the patients inside? Should I tie up my bundle of clothing and creep up and deposit it on the doorstep and slink away like a guilty mother and watch afar off to see if the master of the mansion would accept or reject the foundling? If the commanding general, in his wisdom, 
when he assumed the direction of my affairs and commanded me where to labor had opened the doors for me to enter, the idea would have seemed more practical. It did not occur to me at the moment how I was to effect an entrance to these hospitals, but I have since thought that I might have been expected to watch my opportunity some dark night and storm then, although it must be confessed that the popularity of this mode of attack was rather on the decline in this department at that time, having reached its height very soon after the middle of July. One other uncomfortable experience Clara Barton had at this time. When she first began her work for the relief of the soldiers, she went forth from Washington as a center and still kept up her work in the patent office. When she found that this work was to take all her time, she approached the commissioner of patents and asked to have her place kept for her, but without salary. He refused this proposal and said her salary should continue to be paid. The other clerks also were in hearty accord with this proposal and offered to distribute her work among them. But as the months went by, this grew to be a somewhat laborious undertaking. The number of women clerks in the patent office had increased as so many of the men were in the army. There were twenty of these women clerks, some who had never known Clara Barton, and they did not see any reason why she should be drawing a salary and winning fame for work which they were expected to do. Moreover, the report became current that she was drawing a large salary for her war work in addition. The women in the patent office drew up a round robin, demanding that her salary cease. This news, with the report that the commissioner had acted upon the request, came to her while she had other things to trouble her. Had the salary ceased because she was no longer doing the work, it would have been no more than she had herself proposed. But when her associates having volunteered to do the work for her that her place might be kept and her support continued, became the agents for the dissemination of a false report, she was hurt and indignant. To the honor of Judge Holloway and his associates in the patent office, be it recorded that she received a letter from Judge Holloway that she had been misinformed about the termination of her salary. There had, indeed, been such a rumor and request, but he would not have acted on it without learning the truth, and did not credit it. Her desk would await her return if he continued as commissioner. A few days before Christmas, another pleasant event occurred. Her nephew, Stephen, whom she had continued to call Bub, arrived in uniform. Though hardly fifteen, he had enlisted in the telegraph corps and was sent to be with her. He became her closest friend in an intimacy of relation that did not cease until her eyes closed in death. And then, in her perfect confidence in him, she appointed him her executor. 
A letter in this month reviews the experiences of her sojourn at Hilton Head. Hilton Head, South Carolina, Wednesday, December 9th, 1863. Mr. Parker, my dear, kind friend. It would be impossible for me to tell how many times I have commenced to write you. Sometimes I have put the letter by because we were doing so little there was nothing of interest to communicate. At other times, because there was so much, I had not time to tell it, until some greater necessity drew me away and my half-written letter became rubbish and was destroyed. And now I have but one topic which is of decided interest to me, and that is so peculiarly so that I will hasten to speak of it at once. After almost a year's absence, I am beginning to think about once more coming home, once more meeting the scores of kind friends I have been from so long, and the nearer I bring this object to my view, the brighter it appears. The nearer I fancy the meeting, the dearer the faces and the kinder the smiles appear to me and the sweeter the welcome voices that fall upon my ear. Not that I have not found good friends here. None could have been kinder. I came with one brother, loving, kind, and considerate. I have met others here, scarcely less so, and those, too, with whom rested the power to make me comfortable and happy, and I have yet to recall the first instance in which they have failed to use their utmost endeavor to render me so, and while a tear of joy glistens in my eye at the thought of the kind friends I hope so soon to meet, there will still linger one of regret for the many of those I leave. Eight months and two days ago, we landed at the dock in this harbor. When nations move as rapidly as ours moves at present, that is a long time. And in it as a nation, we have done much, gained much, and suffered much. Still much more remains to be done, much more acquired, and I fear much more suffered. Our brave and noble old army of Virginia still marches and fights, and the glorious armies of the West still fight and conquer. Our soldiers still die upon the battlefield, pine in hospitals, and languish in prison. The wives and sisters and mothers still wait, and weep and hope and toil and pray, and the little child fretting at the long-drawn days, asks in tearful impatience, When will my papa come? The first sound which fell upon my ear in this department was the thunder of our guns in Charleston Harbor, and still the proud city sits like a queen and dictates terms to our army and navy. Sumter, the watchdog that lay before her door, fell, maimed and bleeding, it is true. Still there is defiance in his growl, and death in his bite, 
and pierced and prostrate as he lies with the tidal waves lapping his wounds it were worth our lives and more than his to go and take him we have captured one fort greg and one charnel house wagner and we have built one cemetery morris island the thousand little sand hills that glitter in the pale moonlight are a thousand headstones, and the restless ocean waves that roll and break upon the whitened beach sing an eternal requiem to the toil-worn, gallant dead who sleep beside. As the year drew to a close, the conviction grew stronger that her work in this field was done, Charleston still resisted attempts to recapture it. Sumter, though demolished, was in the hands of the Confederates. There was no prospect of immediate battle, and unless there was fresh bloodshed, there was no imperative call for her. Moreover, little jealousies and petty factions grew up around the hospitals and headquarters, where there were few women and many men, and there were rumors of mismanagement which she must hear, but not reply to. She had many happy experiences to remember, and she left a record of much good done. But her work was finished at that place. In her last entries in her diary, she is disposing of her remaining stores, packing her trunk, and when, after a rather long interval, we hear from her again. She is in Washington. End of chapter 16, part 2.